Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. In a previous episode, I referred to dominionism and the seven mountains ideology, which is a type of movement associated with uh, American evangelicalism and also the charismatic wing which is all about uh, the ability to get your people into places of power, spheres of influence. All of culture is divided into seven mountains or seven spheres, business, arts, church, religion, politics, etc., etc. But the underlying assumption here, or even not even an assumption, the overt <laughs> declaration is dominionism, that we will take dominion over, much like humans are supposed to have dominion over the earth in Genesis 1, this uh, probably a discussion for another day, but I mean, really, that it's an ignoring of the fact that the dominion of Genesis is one of stewardship, one of extreme partnership with nature. It's not one of exploiting and raping nature, but in any case, that will be a different subject for a different day. But the dominionism that we find today is overtly nationalistic. You read Dominion or look at dominionists uh, such as Rick Joyner, and you'll find that it's very much about the Lord has created uh, America or this nation for such a time as this. History has led to us. It is our rule and right to uh, be dominant, to guide and, and run the, the nation. It's a, a take back the land, win back for Christ type uh, ideology, which, which is, as I say, it's unashamedly nationalistic. And it's, it, it has patriotism uh, at its core. And Jason H. writes because he says, you know, he also grew up with this, he's familiar with this. And he does ask a question, he says, is there any sense in which the Spirit is at work in nationhood? I'm paraphrasing here, by the way, sorry, Jason. But is there any sense in which the Spirit is at work in nationhood and as a sign of the kingdom and of the witness of the people of God as the king in all creation? And if so, how do you discern it? And then here's my paraphrase. He also says, but if essentially he says, but... If not, if nationhood is, is a completely demonic force and you're enthralled to it, then is the entire charismatic experience, for example, I mentioned Bethel Church by name because I know that they teach dominionism in their ministry course, and they are not unique by the, in this by any means, but anyway, is the entire charismatic experience, and by extension much of our charismatic Christian culture, basically a complete sham so I want to address this really clearly right from the start. No, it's not a complete sham. Bethel Church is not a complete waste of time. It's a wonderful move of, of the Lord in that area. And anybody who's been involved in that community knows how they love each other very well in, in a way I've never seen before. They love each other and encourage each other very well. And in the wider sense, the charismatic movement or the movement of the Holy Spirit or going after Holy Spirit revival, these are not complete shams. I would never say that. What we do need to see, though, is that the movement of the Holy Spirit has always been connected to nationalist and racist and tribalist temptations right from the start. So go back to Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples at Pentecost. And what happens? They start speaking in other languages and people from different nations hear the Lord being praised and the gospel being preached in their own language. And this event, which was an event that directly and symbolically is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all peoples, 
This event then led to Gentiles and Jews of various ethnic backgrounds and Jews who didn't speak Hebrew and Gentiles who weren't Jewish at all, all coming in to the movement of the kingdom of God. A continuation of Jesus' movement and actions where he was drawing together into his family and his movement people from all social classes, languages, and ethnic backgrounds, and political affiliation. And the church now in Acts is continuing this work, and all nations are joining this movement. And what is one of the first things that happens is racism. Ethnic Jewish people who are concerned to preserve the heritage of their race and their people are now wondering how, as followers of Jesus, do we relate now to Gentiles who do not share any of the markers and ethnic traditions and heritage that we feel we need to preserve. And it leads to a conflict of Jews and Gentiles, both Christians now, but treating each other badly. And then that leads to Stephen and the seven who have to be appointed in order to take care of foreigners, the widows, the foreign widows, because they weren't being taken care of by the Christian church for racist reasons. And then you get Peter, the Apostle Peter, is has his vision from the Lord where he sees all the different animals on a blanket and he's told to take and eat or kill and eat every animal. And he says, no way, I'm pure. I've never broken the purity laws. And the Lord has to tell him three times, take and eat. And it's directly, overtly, a story about not treating different races and different nationalities and different ethnic groups as unclean. And this leads to Peter then uh, relating to the Roman soldier who sent a delegation to meet with Peter. And it, the whole book of Acts, frankly, is essentially a story of how the gospel transcends ethnic and racial boundaries in order to encompass a new people, a royal priesthood. And at every point along the way, and at every time when the Christian prophets or preachers are most opposed when Stephen, who was the martyr, noticed that Stephen wasn't the, mar the first martyr for the Christian faith, wasn't a philosopher or a theologian. It was the guy giving food to foreign women. And he attracted the attention and the murderous rage of those who thought it was their job to preserve their patriotism and their ethnic privilege. And at every point in the book of Acts where you see people most want to kill the apostles, it's always when the status of being a chosen person is most at threat. Or it's when the apostles try and expand the relationship to wider than just one type of ethnic heritage person. It really is a challenge to the patriotism. And it's not just the Jews. So then the apostles will go to Ephesus, for example, and they'll start to preach in the marketplace. And there's a riot. There's a riot because... The Gentiles, the pagans, the Romans, are not able to sell their silver statues to Artemis. And there's a huge riot and they cry, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For hours on end. And the apostles are subjected to mob violence and mob rule. But that chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, is a patriotic chant. Ephesus was a city intimately related to the worship uh, and the temple of Artemis. People came from all over the world to see it, and it was a patriotic duty to defend Artemis. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians is similar in tone and in feeling to hear USA, 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 or God 
save the queen, God save the queen. It was the similar type of patriotic chant. It's not a religious chant. The opposition of the earliest Christians to the Jews and the Gentiles took the form of economic disruption and patriotic rivalry. These were the things that most offended the uh, the Jews and Gentiles. Politics, identity. It wasn't really arcane religious or theological discussions that bothered people. It was the outworking of the people of the kingdom of God challenging those prior allegiances and forms of life which we easily recognize today as political, socio-political and economic. So it's not a complete sham to see that wherever the Holy Spirit movement starts, the rival gods are sure to follow. And in fact, this is what we see, even in the Azusa Street revival. Charles Parham, who was the Bible teacher who was leading the first revival in Kansas, Charles Parham was holding a Bible study and they, were, they started to experience manifestations of the Holy Spirit, a revival of the Holy Spirit. And William Seymour, who was an African-American preacher from Los Angeles, he heard about this and he traveled to Kansas in order to experience and to witness what was happening. And Charles Parham made William Seymour sit in another room and listen to his teaching through a door that had been left open. Do you know why Charles Parham wouldn't let William Seymour into the room. Charles Parham was a proud and open member of the KKK. He was a white supremacist, and he continued to be one for his whole life. And he would lead his Holy Spirit revival meetings as well as preach white supremacy and the seclusion of African-Americans from the room. The Holy Spirit revival and racism go hand in hand in lots of ways, or they show up in the same place. But what William Seymour then did was he took the revival teaching, he took it back to Los Angeles, he founded a warehouse church on Azusa Street and began the Pentecostal movement. And Pentecostalism is now the largest and most expansive Christian movement in the history of Christian movements. It spread further and faster than any other Christian branch. And it involves South Americans, Africans, Europeans, and of course North Americans. And William Seymour realized that the movement of the Holy Spirit was connected to racial integration and reconciliation. And so his meetings were overtly about that. They overtly involved the um, fellowship of different races. And Charles Parham came to witness Azusa Street, and in fact, he stood up on the platform and condemned Seymour and the uh, black people and white people who were worshipping together in one space. So you see that the, the movement and the Holy Spirit charismatic renewal movements are not separate from racial tension and nationalism. And there's a lot of other stories there, and I recommend that you look at the work of Chris Green. Look him up on Facebook, look him up online. He's a charismatic Pentecostal scholar who's looking at the history of Pentecostalism and he's facing it head on, that the racism and the nationalism is not just magically done away with when the Holy Spirit descends upon a room. In fact, the nationalism becomes even stronger. It rears itself up, just like it reared itself up in Acts, just like it rears itself up every time there's a move of the Holy Spirit to break down barriers. Because what happens is these barriers... They're not just neutral entities. They are powers. They are principalities. 
I'm going to mention this a lot more, I think, in the, perhaps the following episode. I'm going to spend more time on this. These are powers and principalities which are faceless forces which influence our lives. They are man-made, but they are not human. They've come from our collective habits, our collective agreement, our shared imagination. They've come from our blind assumptions that we're born into. And they've developed a life of their own, which then take over human life. Think of the Sabbath that Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for Sabbath. And he puts the Sabbath back in its place because the Sabbath was a principality which had taken over too much. And this is what you see with nationalism and ethnic privilege and prejudice. They are principalities, unseen forces, which have now grown too big and they're taking too much. And the Holy Spirit's work in the history of Christianity has always been to oppose this thing. And in fact, this opposition of national privilege is accompanies the work of the Holy Spirit everywhere it goes. It's always going to be a breaking down of the groups that you're born into. This always happens in any place that the Holy Spirit has descended or that there's been what we might call a revival. This has happened. And on its heels always follows the temptation, the rival gods the little grubby gods of nationalism and ethnic privilege and patriotism rise up because they are being put in their place and they don't like it and they fight. So what I see when I, when I witness or am even a participant in, for example, Bethel culture is not that they are somehow worse or that they have invented something or that they are even endorsing it because they're not. These are not cultures filled with people who have hatred in their hearts towards black people. I can tell you that for sure. Bethel has a movement which is intentionally international. It wants to break down barriers. It wants to bring racial and national harmony. But what you see in that environment, as I see in any other environment, which hasn't taken seriously the danger and the idolatry at the root of nationalism is that they are unable, they don't have anything in place to discern this spirit, and they don't have anything in place to dismantle it when it shows up. And in fact, what you end up seeing is people embracing what otherwise they should reject. And this is where the commitment to the American ideal or American way of life or American freedom comes in, because these spiritualities are highly individualistic. They begin and end with the individual, with the human heart. They sing songs to King Jesus, King of my heart. They analyze and discern and judge people based on their motives or based on whether they are personally good or not, or whether they mean well or not, or whether they're personally kind or not, or if they don't have any uh, overt feelings of hatred towards others, then they can't possibly be racist, for example. And the beginning and end of all the, the moral horizon is the individual And this is an inadequate toolbox to dismantle nationalism and racism. Even if you want to, you can't use the tools of individualism to attack organized, collective, systematized and generational evil. But that is what these things are. We're embedded in cultures. We inherited cultures that we did not invent And we can dismantle them, but it takes 
collected effort. But if you're part of a world that thinks any collective act is socialism and you think socialism is evil, well, you're already starting on a back foot. And if you have a spirituality which thinks that Jesus is there just to save your individual soul and that the way of Jesus was not also a social and economic and pragmatic and political movement, if you don't have a lively sense of that, then you're just trying to hit a nail with a fishing line. It's just the wrong tool. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that uh, my charismatic friends are are plotting and planning. It means that they uh, are unable. They're, They're inadequate to the task because their imagination, their political imagination is anemic, because their vision of Jesus is too small and their language and their culture is too individualistic. And I think they're in thrall to the American ideal of self-reliance, self-determination, and quote-unquote freedom, a certain form of freedom. And I'm not the only one saying this. This is a well-known critique, a well-known analysis. But you see it playing out all the time. That good It's how you can explain well-meaning, good-intentioned people can lend themselves to systematic widespread, deep-rooted evil all the time. I remember once sitting in a room where uh, one of the Bethel preachers, Chris Vallotton, he was preaching about, he was preaching about some aspect of the lordship of Jesus. I think it was, it was something around the giving up your freedoms or laying your freedoms down at the expense of other people. And he was following the logic of the way of Jesus in his talk. And he got to a point where he stopped talking. And then he laughed and he said, oh, I almost sounded un-American there for a minute. And he backtracked because he didn't want to look like following the way of Jesus might put him at odds with the American form of life that he had inherited and which he believed was his virtue to support. And this is what I noticed all the time. It's not that these are bad people. They're not plotting and to take over the black population. <laughs> no way. No way. In fact, I'll just say this very clearly. There's a lot worse Christian cultures out there than Bethel. That's for sure. I'm just talking about them because I, I, I've been influenced by them. I, I owe a lot to them. A lot of my friends come from that world. A lot of my church culture is influenced by it. So this is the world that I'm working with and moving in. But the amount of times that you can see that where well-meaning, well-intentioned Christian leaders or speakers follow the logic of Jesus up to a point, and then when it looks like it's going to damage or challenge their pre-decided allegiance to their nationality or their home culture, that's the sticking point. But it's been the sticking point since the New Testament. And all I'm asking is for Christians who want to be followers of the way of Jesus to notice that. And to notice that, yeah, being a follower of Jesus does put you at odds with your home national culture. And when you feel that your home national culture needs to be defended, now you're in the realm of nationalism. Now your national culture has become a little god in which you're living and moving and having your being, and it's become an ideology. And that doesn't make you some Nazi. It doesn't make you some murderous racist. It means that you haven't yet had an imagination that's been baptized by the way of Christ. And that kind of thing isn't going to happen 
if we start and stop with individuals, by the way, as I was saying before, it's only going to happen when we start to realize that humans working together create things bigger than themselves. And then those things can have power. And that when they have power and they go corrupt, that's when we need to reform and redeem them. And this is the language of powers and principalities, which I'm going to do in the following episode. I'm going to have a whole uh, session. It's just going to be talking about different tools that I think can be in the follower of Jesus's toolbox. Now, I don't want this to be just a negative exercise of pointing out when I think people have gone wrong. We want to have a new, renewed Christian imagination. Another friend writes to me, and I'm not going to say her name because she has a, a lovely distinctive first name. So I don't want her to be identified. But when I talk about my schooling as an evangelical conservative, or when I talk about the patriotic culture I grew up with, this friend was always there, just a few seats away. So uh, uh, so she writes, and I think her writing is similar to what other people experienced. Along with many issues, she, uh, she highlights all the kinds of things we've been talking about, that the preponderance to nationalism, the embrace of conspiracy thinking and the paranoid style, the mixture of militarism and materialism with Christianity. She says, these, along with many other issues, have really made me question my faith. I felt like the Jesus I was taught to believe in is not the Jesus I actually believe in. I honestly feel at times like I've come from a cult and then she goes on to explain how hard it is she's finding to, uh, to find a Christian community in the world that she's living in right now, the area of the world. I mean, the first thing I would say is uh, I don't think cult is the right word because a cult doesn't let you leave. And I don't think what we grew up in is a cult. I do think, however, that she's right. We grew up, if you, if you grew up with a, a, a conservative or fundamentalistic, evangelical Christianity that highly uh, valued patriotism as a virtue that had no problem at all with joining the army and killing your enemies. If you grew up in a culture which had no problem at all, uh, in fact, enthusiastically embraces gun culture and and lethal self-defense of property. If you grew up in a world which very uh, highly values high boundaries between races and ethnic groups. If you grew up in that kind of world, you grew up with a set of toxic ideas. They are bad ideas. And the badness of these ideas can be seen every day in your headlines and your news feeds. They are bad ideas. And the fact that people who are Christians embrace these ideas doesn't make them any less bad. It makes them worse. It means that these bad ideas are being followed in the holy name of Jesus. So when I meet people who say they've lost their faith, you, you, my friend, are not the only one who has written to me in the last week expressing a loss of faith or an almost loss of faith. You are not the only one. The identification of Christianity with these rotten, toxic, hateful ideas that are leading to chaos and murder on the streets, that are leading to lives that are stunted and shriveled, imaginations that are small and tiny, and bad ideas that just seem to have a life of their own. 
you are not wrong to recognize that these things have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. And to, to lose your faith over that is in some ways exactly the right option. If I meet people who say they're no longer Christian and I look at the world that they grew up in and the Christianity they were introduced to, I just say, congratulations, you have a moral compass that is in working order. You're a healthy human being. Because human beings know when life is something good for them and when it's not. But then I'd want to very quickly add that Jesus is way better than Christians. Jesus is way better than Christianity. And that the measure that we use to measure these toxic systems, when we look at the nationalism and the violence and the racism and the military and the greed and all these things that I've been mentioning over and over and over again, when you look at these terrible systems, well, the measure of your goodness, the way that you can measure why they're bad or not, is usually because Jesus is so good. And so the righteous anger that we feel against Christians The righteous anger that we feel when we look at churches that waste individual lives or suppress whole groups or who uh, lend their voice and their money and their resources and their public platform to other people and other movements which are suppressing and wasting and destroying lives everywhere. The righteous anger we feel at that is Christ anger. It's come from followers of Jesus who themselves were helping to shape the imagination of the world around them. I guarantee you that if you were a pre-Christian Roman living in the year zero, you would not be morally outraged by the waste of life or the systematic brutalization of whole groups of people. It was the Christian imagination working its way through the system, like yeast through dough, which I'm going to talk about in the next episode. But it was the change in an imagination which altered the way the world thinks. And that righteous anger that we feel, and I say rightly feel, against people who call themselves followers of Jesus, who look nothing like Jesus and seem to embrace and celebrate outcomes that look nothing like the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the way of Christ, that anger that you feel is itself a product of a worldwide imagination that has been altered and changed because Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Because the Holy Spirit moved in one group of people with a high value of their ethnic privilege and he broke down the barriers and changed the hearts so that collectively, together, They would embrace other groups and other people and bring them into the fold and themselves change as a result and allow themselves to be changed. It's these sort of movements that are part of Christian heritage as well. So we don't have to say it was all a sham. We don't have to say it was a complete waste of time. We get to use the tools that we were given to us by our exposure to Jesus Christ and his goodness. And we use those tools to determine whether the Christians are good or not. Whether the things they want are good or not. And whether the the way they go about getting the things they want are good or not. 
I just think Jesus is still the best person I've ever met. I, I still think he's the measure of all goodness. So nobody loves foreigners better than he does. Nobody treats women better than he does. Nobody loves their enemies better than he does. Nobody gets righteously angry better than he does. Nobody provides food for others better than him. Nobody heals. Nobody teaches. Nobody lays down the authoritative final word on the law. Nobody is a king better than Jesus. And I guess I'll end with the words of Bill Johnson. Jesus is perfect theology. And God is good. He's better than you think. In the next episode, I'm going to spend some time on what I think are some key takeaway lines, tools that we can use for renewing a Christian imagination for politics, society, and fellowship with each other. So, we've just been having uh, me talk about dominionism, Pentecostalism, racism, the broken information ecosystem, culture warriors, all sorts of stuff. And I am joined, as always, with my friends Sean and Chris. Sean McCoy is a man who has worked in the oil and gas industry for the last two decades, and he's now running podcasts and other information systems, helping the energy industry be socially conscious and deal with its business practices in ways that are healthy and positive for the world around them. Chris Marchand is a former principal of a school and an educator. He's an author, and he is also a priest, a pastor in the Anglican Church. And they are both, very importantly, Americans. So it's very good to have their voices and their opinions uh, in on this podcast as I continue to explore renewing the political uh, imagination for followers of Jesus. Chris, Sean, it's really nice to have you here again. Thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Very good. Love it as always, my friend. <laughs> Very good. We've had Galibe. That was a fun conversation, wasn't it? I enjoyed, I enjoyed chatting to uh, Galibe. We've got some other interviews coming up as well. There's going to be other voices in the mix. Some women. Imagine that. Some women are going to be joining us soon, guys. Watch out for that. What else are we going to deal with coming up in the future, Sean? Well, we're going to talk about voting. We're going to talk about... Um... You know, some of these, as these political, as the political theology type mindset starts to interact. And it's so interesting to me when I talk to people about what we're doing, that they're like, well, nobody wants to talk about politics and nobody wants to talk about theology. And then I tell them we're going to do the both and they're just head like spins. <laughs> I, think, I think anything in the political realm of how we interpret uh, both those worlds at one time, which includes things like voting and things like that. Voting, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know that we already touched a little bit on violence and, and, uh, being involved in the war making and, and the lethal violence of the state. Uh, we know we talked a bit about that and that's going to be something we're going to sort of be, spend a lot more time on in the future, but we, there's a method to our madness. We haven't touched on some of these things, voting and war uh, deliberately because we are on purpose trying to build this, the context, the scaffolding of a, of a new imagination so that we can start to slot these things in. Chris, what else are we going to be talking about? You know, one thing that that was interested that we've talked about in our own time is uh, like the Pledge of Allegiance and what Americans, right. what American Christians do about that. <laughs> well, I think one of the uh, people there's a, there's a man named William Kavanaugh, who's a Roman Catholic American social and political theologian. 
And he has written some excellent stuff about the Pledge of Allegiance. And there was a, well, I was thinking of you when I read this guy, actually, because I think he was a, I think he was the principal of a school or he worked in a school. And as a, for Christian Christ-centered reasons, he, he didn't want to pledge allegiance in the school and he got sued, you know, and, and I was thinking of you when I read this. So, cause you're, did you ever come across this, Chris, in your schooling? That's that's the deal. I, I was uh, the headmaster of a relatively small uh, Christian school. It's known as in um, in our world as classical Christian education, which is kind of its own movement. And uh-huh. uh, for years, uh, when when I took over as headmaster, I I started a daily assembly or or like a little daily chapel time. At the at, from the outset, I chose not to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and I just thought in, in my in my little small pea brain, I was like, "This isn't even an issue. Why why would we care about this? Right? Uh, this is this is a Christian school. This shouldn't even be of interest to us." <laughs> you know, in my idea, in my naive idealism, that's what I thought. Well, fast forward uh, seven or so years later, and um, you know, a mom who is a, is a friend of mine, and I've known her for years now. Uh, brings up like I really think we should do this. <laughs> we right. should, we should, why? Or actually, it was more phrased this way: uh, Why aren't we doing the pledge? This is really important. Uh, our, our children should be saying this. Right. It's very important that they have a proper understanding of who they are as citizens, uh, as proper Americans. Okay. This right, is just right. what we do. We just we just do the pledge. And I, you know, in my head, I go, well, I don't really actually think we should be doing that. I mean, I, it wasn't in my head. I actually said it to her. So it got brought up to the school board. And I, I said, I, I just, I can't do this. Now, I didn't make this a, a huge battle or a hill to die on. I just said, right. this is where I stand on it. The school board voted to uh, institute having us start to say the pledge. And so the compromise was that it was led by a student. And so I refrained. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, so I, I didn't make it a, a, a dr- you know, knockout, drag out fight. Yeah. But I just said, this is where I stand. I mean, these are people that I know. These are pe- some of the people I've gone to church with over the years. Yeah. So, you know, it was more of a, an, 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 a a way of living in that tension as a community. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. that's part of my own story. I didn't, I didn't get sued. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, I do know. I do know some stories of that. I was, I think it might've even come up in this, in my interview with Galibe and I, because <laughs> I was thinking, um, you know, you read in Acts where Paul shows up in Athens and he's incensed by the idols. Like we're told this, he thinks it's really bad. And then he shows up in the heart of the idolatry, the temple with all the statues in it. But instead of like railing against the idols, he, he doesn't like say to hell with all of you and you're, you're blasphemous. He just says, Oh, men of Athens, I see how, devoted you are to to religion and worship and i see how much you want to worship things rightly let me tell you the name of the god that you know you don't know yet and let me tell you about the god who makes it rain on the just and the unjust and it was funny because i had this realization of like oh if i think patriotism is idolatry then that's how i should act it's not my job to go in like i my own medicine is uh you identify the evil using the words of jesus but then you treat evil the way Jesus treated it or the way the people who knew Jesus treated it, which was to go, men of America, I see that you are passionate about your land and your people and your allegiance. Let me tell you about the one in whom it is worth having allegiance in. You know, let me tell you about the one who is going to provide safety or something like that. I did think, oh, yeah, I shouldn't go in and just take a big, a big old swipe at things that people find sacred. 
even if I think it is idolatry. <laughs> so I understand not to not to pick fights with people uh, over that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I really feel that tension. I've I've not approached it from that perspective, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, one one of the things that I've thought about over the years, the tension that I just can't, I don't know how to get over. And this comes out of American evangelicalism, which is so all the people in this school um, were, would be considered Protestants. You know, they're not yeah. Catholic, they're not Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. And so here we have this this group of people that would never like so so like on Good Friday and in, in the Anglican Church, many of us we bring out a crucifix. Um, and, and we, we kiss the feet of Jesus on right. Good Friday. Right. Um, most, um, many people in our church, every time we, we pass the cross in our church, we bow to it. We bow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and basically all the people in our school uh, would consider that a form of idolatry. Right. This is, this is, this is um, Catholic paganism, mumbo jumbo stuff that it's, it's superstition. How, how could a Christian ever, you right. know, do something right. so sacrilegious? And here they are every day, you know, standing and pledging themselves, crossing their heart, meaning the very core of my being is now aligned with this, this symbol. And so, and so I think maybe the question would be, you, you could do the same thing that you just did. You could say, um, Christians, I see that you take idolatry seriously. Right, 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 right. <laughs> kind of start from that tagline. You affirm, you affirm what's good about a group. You could do that. Yeah, you could yeah. do that. Fascinating. Have you... Have you ever heard of, I'm um, talking to both of you, Sean and Chris, have you ever heard of Bob Ekblad? No. Maybe, maybe just in my conversation, E-K-B-L-A-D. Uh, Bob, there's this brilliant uh, YouTube documentary somebody did on him called Liberating Fire, and I recommend anybody look it up. But he lives in Oregon. He is a New Testament scholar, and he is like a kind of a, a Holy Spirit healing kind of guy. And he uh, is not a political dummy. <laughs> and he runs. Yeah, anyway, he is a brilliant guy. And he takes oaths really seriously, more seriously than me. Like he has repented of his Boy Scout oaths, for example. And he says, look, when I was a Boy Scout, I was every day I was pledging under God, you know, and that, that was wrong. I was, it wasn't God of Jesus. It wasn't the God who is Jesus Christ. It was the God of something else. And uh, I was binding myself to a principality again and again and again. And he's repented of, of all the oaths he took <laughs> that weren't it, to Jesus Christ. It's really interesting guy to talk to. And he's not filled with hate. I mean, it's, it's not like he's on an anti-Boy Scout crusade or, but he's just realized, yeah, these are important words. Words matter. Oaths matter. They're not neutral. And, uh, and, I've, and I've constantly been plowing into a certain field over and over again and it's time to stop so yeah i mean because i talked about dominionism i don't know sean did you ever come across dominionism or any of that kind of pentecostal take back the nation kind of language well from from a from a like a purely christian faith standpoint my because my because of my history is a little bit skewed a little bit different so right. given so kind of being the babe if you will of the group because up until my early 30s i was I was pledging allegiance to not only the the uh, flag, but also there was a pledge to Texas that we right started to become. So you're doubly bound. <laughs> you need an exorcism. Yeah. There's a Texas <laughs> pledge. Oh yes, sir. <laughs> I didn't know about this. Yeah. yeah, they started. They actually started integrating it in my as I left out of my senior year. And actually, I've been I've been recently in the last couple of years. I've been to a business conference, a professional corporate 
oil and gas conference here in Houston, where not only did we pledge allegiance to the flag before the thing started, we pledged allegiance to Texas. And this isn't a mixed group of all kinds of people in oil and gas, which is extremely diverse. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So, I, so I say all that to say, I don't have the um, kind of that academic theological kind of experience on the backside, if you will, in terms of a historic comparison right. around different, different areas. Yeah. So, so some of this is even new and even the whole idea. I mean, it was, it was some of the language that you used in the nomad podcast that got me to recognize that the sacred, even the, even the idea of an oath. I mean, we look at this oath yeah. and what it means, which I think may help. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe help delineate some of the aspects that we're that you were we're talking about in this episode, and people I think are struggling with is this the separation that part of the quote unquote imagination, which is more of the implementation. I think of when you become a follower of the way, by default, what does that what does it mean for the rest of your life? Whereas so much of it seems to be coming alongside, and you know, mm. why, why wouldn't you pledge allegiance to the flag? Why wouldn't you, you know, God, you know, God bless America, and with a period. You know, yeah, why, why, why wouldn't we? I mean, a lot of these ideas actually have their roots in theology. So, um, so the idea of, of sovereignty. So the reason why the Protestant Reformation worked as well as it did. So there was a lot of reform movements. The, the Roman Catholic, the medieval Catholic Church had a lot of people wanting to reform it. Like, it wasn't Martin Luther's first, you know, original idea. But the reason why the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther worked as well as it did was that it coincided with the rise of this idea of sovereignty, of national sovereignty away from empire. So the idea that the overarching dominant kind of groups were needed to have needed to be broken up. So the Habsburg Empire needed to be broken up. The Bourbon Empire had to be broken up. The Roman Catholic Empire which was a institution that spanned all languages and, you know, races and social classes. These things were seen as oppressive and they needed to be broken out. And there was a rise in the language of sovereignty and the idea that individual nations or individual groups or in Germany, the different princes, they should control their own regions. And that the idea was that, that it actually became an idea of a social good that, every nation or every people group had its own patch of land and governed itself, which was, so that idea met with the Roman Catholic reformation in Martin Luther and it took off. And, uh, uh, and one of the key clues there is that we even use the word Protestant. It wasn't Martin Luther. That was the, what that was the Protestant. The Protestants were the German princes who were protesting against the empire in the name of individual sovereign freedom. And they were latching on to Martin Luther's ideas as a way to, it was like a coincidence of two very powerful movements were meeting in one movement, took the name Protestant, not because of theology, but because of politics, because the princes were protesting against the emperor. And so, but what you see is this idea that sovereignty, which used to belong to the realm of theology, so only God is sovereign. Only God is the one who makes the rules. What you saw in the medieval mind was that that idea started to be transferred to people groups, to nations, to nation states, to cities. The idea that every group should be sovereign, should make the rules itself. And this is what William Kavanaugh, who I mentioned earlier, he calls the migration of the holy that what used to be considered 
holy or sacrosanct has now migrated and it's still holy, right? So he says, look, humans haven't stopped thinking things are holy. It's just migrated what they think is holy. So it used to be that the the emblems of the church, well, like Chris says, you know, where you kneel and you kiss the feet of Jesus, like the church was holy, but now the state has taken over a lot of that. And that's where you get standing and pledging allegiance to things or, you know, folding your flags very carefully or making sure that you don't, if it touches the ground, you, you burn it and all, you know. The, the language and the liturgy and the emotional energy of holiness is now attached to the furniture of state, not to the furniture of the church. And, you know, this is part of that movement that we saw actually in the Protestant Reformation, which was to start to make people groups have the language and the importance that of, of holiness and sacredness and sovereignty. So if you'd like, I can actually read the Pledge of Texas. Go on. So it's honor the Texas flag. I pledge allegiance to the Texas, one state under God, one and indivisible. That's the pledge. Well, see, that's, I mean, William Kavanaugh will point out that's theological language. A lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. honor, indivisible, right. one, yep. even the word allegiance, you know, uh, we're going to talk about this in, 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 in the next episode, but the word faith in the New Testament actually is, means the word, it means allegiant. And uh, so I'll, that whole thing you just read is actually a theological document where all the intellectual force of that is being aimed at the state of Texas, as it were, attracting all that attention. But it's theological through and through. I was just doing a little bit. Of, I was just doing a little bit of homework on it, but this part I knew. So Texas became a country, or we got our independence in 1836. We became a state in 1845. That pledge did not did not pass it did not become something official until 1933. So that, it'd be, so that means that for almost a hundred years, the state of Texas, you know, or the country became a, or it became a country than a state for almost a hundred years before we had this pledge. So it'd be really interesting to see what was going on. If you look at the early 1900s around nationalism and the changing of cultures and the way things were being introduced and the, right, the worry of, of things happening and being, you know, powers taking over and, now we have to find what, what, where's our allegiance, where, what's holy to us. And here we have to have something that tells everybody that I'm letting you know what's holy to me. And that's this great, big, wonderful flag in the state. Yeah, There's lots of states and provinces all over the world and, um, and they don't do this, right? It is a, it is a, I mean, Americans are exceptional in some ways. American exceptionalism is actually true when it comes to its patriotism. <laughs> like there's patriots all over the world, but, but Americans really do have like a pretty firm grip on a certain type of patriotism which you know you rarely find in other countries i'm not saying you never find it but like what's like like chris what you're saying like your friend she's like well of course we would do this i mean this is what people do whereas in you know in england or in canada like if if somebody was to introduce that kind of activity they would be seen as odd Mm -hmm. and they'd really have to fight to to they really have to fight for it. They'd have to justify why they're doing it. Whereas your friend was like, well, this is what people do. So that's the kind of thing we're t- dealing with. And we're not saying Americans invented patriotism, but it's, it's kind of adapted. A, it's, it's got a kind of a base level in America, which is a lot higher than anywhere else I've seen. So Stephen, you know, talking about all this, you know, it brings up more questions. You brought up dominionism and yeah. um, you, you actually, you brought up the, 
the pastor. He's kind of a, a author and prophet, or at least he would label himself a prophet, Rick Joyner. Yeah. I, I was, I, I read one of his books once, um, mm-hmm. fascinating stuff. Um, and so then I had, I had these whole other swing of friends that would maybe be called neo-Calvinist, neo-reformed people. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a form of, uh, they would use the, ty- the term theonomy or theonomy. I don't know yeah. how to pronounce it exactly. And um, this also plays into their eschatology, which is they're post-millennialists. There's probably too many talks in here, but can you maybe yeah. just do some description of what, what, what do some of the dominionists want? What do some of, do you know what some of these um, young Calvinists want in America? I just... Well, it's all coming from the same source. It's all coming from this Protestant source. So Calvin's, Calvin was a, a French... Reformation theologian. He was a reformed theologian, and he was invited by the city-state of Geneva in Switzerland to take over. And he created a theocracy, or a theonomy, where they attempted to run the city-state of of Geneva as a Christian state, right? And it's coming from this kind of stuff I was talking about, which is the idea that pre- Empire, like when you talk about New Testament, then the early church, the New Testament church, to to honor God or to to be right with God meant that you would follow the way of Jesus, like so you would follow the the pattern of life that Jesus set, right, for the early Christians. And as I've said more than once, the pattern of life that Jesus said doesn't lend itself very well to running city states and countries. It just doesn't. But the early Christians weren't trying to run a city, state, or a country. They didn't think that that was important. So for them, it was like, well, we are right with God if we are looking like Jesus looked. If we act like he acted, if we treat our enemies the way he wanted us to, that's that's all we need to do. But then as history moves on and Christianity starts to become more of an actual player in civilization, it becomes necessary to think, oh, there's two ways to be right with God you can live in an individual way to be like Jesus in your individual life. But we also now have a public life where we're in charge of the sun, the country and the cities. And so how do we be right with God? When it really comes down to it, how do you kill your enemies? Because that's what a country needs you to do and still be right with God. That's what it really comes down to. And then this is where we get this whole idea of the two cities or two kingdoms theology, which is very Reformation idea, which is there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And if you are a human, you are going to live in both. And the kingdom of God is an internal private affair. And the, the city of man or the kingdom of man is an external public thing. And you live in both of those. And the rules of the external public world is different than the rules of the internal world. You know, for Calvin's Geneva, for example, it was totally possible to be a person who killed enemies. Calvin presided over the execution of, of, of some of his theological enemies, Her- heretics. He burned some heretics. Um, it's totally possible to have a standing army and to wage war on your neighbors in defense of your sovereignty and be a man of God because you are living according to the kingdom of man and God has a set of rules which are different than the kingdom of God's rules, which are the internal rules. And so then the, all the resources that you have to draw from are going to be the Old Testament, which I've talked about more than once, where the Old Testament becomes the, the text that you mine for all these sort of rules and regulations. So 
Calvin's Geneva was a very Old Testament type thing. You know, it looked much more like an Old Testament kind of world than a New Testament. It didn't look like the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> right? So this is where you get this kind of dichotomy where it becomes possible for the Christians to have uh, an imagination where they think being a good citizen makes me right with God. I'm fine. I'm presiding over lethal violence and, you know, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm, I have an economy that that charges uh, interest rates on my on my friends, and I'm I'm producing poverty and trying to deal with enemies of the state by raising high borders. I can do all these things and be right with God, even if I don't look at all like Jesus looked. And uh, this is dominionism is just a Pentecostal version of uh, Geneva of of Calvin's Reformation of two kingdoms theology. The idea that like we can put our Christian, our Jesus activity kind of aside, or we can hide it for a time in order to be good and robust citizens of our nation. And it's fine. You know, it's it's a, like a way of saying to people, it's fine if you participate in all these evil things because you're just being a good citizen of the kingdom of man. And there's a different set of rules for you. That's basically what it comes down to. That so makes me think of what, what you just said, um... Let's see if I make this. If I say this right, based on what you were saying, it, it stirred up in me this idea that also as a citizen, that to, to, if God blessed America and the United States is this kind of this almost this result of God's blessing, and we're here representing God. For me to for me to actually be a good Christian and follower of the way, I need to make sure that I take care of that yeah. that that thing as well. So if if America is succeeding, if the United States is doing well, if we're the ones that are winning of our way of life is being spread throughout the world and that kind of thing, then I'm at the same time, it's kind of a collective deal where not only because we're blessed by God. So God obviously wants us to do this. And so you can kind of get, get, I think I felt like I have for a long time felt that that was kind of part of the narrative a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a hundred percent, but I definitely hear that narrative from so many people on my end, especially because this this comes up in a lot of groups. I mean, there's in a small group I'm in last night, wonderful people. I mean, people I love again, and a friend of mine asked what we thought of the flag. Like, what does the flag mean to you? And uh, two of the groups, uh, two, two women that we know that are friends of ours in this little small group, they were just how they cried at church and how they'd have people stand up. And, and one of them lives in Washington, DC. And I know them enough to know that they are not, that the, the harmonies that are coming out of their heart around the way they feel about this stuff are not intended Right to either to either counter what Jesus did, or I mean, they will tell you all day long, and I know I believe them when they say they love Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And they love America, and they love America as well. It's just hard. it's it's the seeing that that one isn't indicative of the other. You know, like I mean, the United States is not here because because God said I need the United States for me to exist. No, and Jesus and I. So it's it's a, but it's hard. It really, and we keep saying this, but it really is hard to unpack oh, that a little bit. Is a is a an experiment in in liberalism, ca- classical liberalism. I, mean, I always find it funny when conservative Christians say, "I'm not a liberal," and they're actually like the best example of a liberal there is because they highly, highly value sovereignty and freedom. And if you if if you can't be a liberal without liberty, <laughs> and so the the people who really value liberty, which is what the United States was based on, you know, as a political experiment in liberalism. And this comes directly from sovereignty, the language of sovereignty. 
And it's, and it's the, it's an outworking of the French revolution, which itself was an outworking of the Protestant reformation. And so this is what we're getting with the United States. So as you get people like generations of people who are living in a, in a culture that has been designed to attract their worship towards the state. It was designed that way. The architects of, you know, Rousseau and Locke and others, the architects of the people who are, who are at the foundation of the American way of life, they were deliberately using theological language uh, about their, the, the, the ideas that they were using. And so I'm not surprised at all with now, now that we have well-meaning women in your small group or various politicians or, you know, yourself, Sean, like, of course, we're going to have generations of people who think that loving their country is the same as, as loving Jesus. And there's no conflict because it's been designed to do that. It's a very successful social, social experiment. And, you know, it's one of the things that we, we just need to essentially just kind of keep coming back to is like, all right, you say you love Jesus. What, what does a nation need in order to exist? <laughs> what does America need in order to exist? Does that look or sound like anything Jesus would say or do? You know, and, and if it doesn't, then you kind of have to just say, well, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I'm just saying, if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you have to look a little bit like him. And I'm not even saying that that's the right thing to do. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a whole lot of, you know, thin, hot air. You know, we're not making an argument that it's the right or wrong thing. We're just saying they're very different. <laughs> and uh, so you can do two things. You can be a good patriot or you can be a follower of Jesus. I don't think you can be both just based on what following Jesus looks like, what the way of his looks like when it comes to enemies, when it comes to foreigners, when it comes to your rights and laying them down. That's all I'm saying. I'm just, I'm not even necessarily saying that patriotism is such a bad thing. I'm just saying it doesn't work with following Jesus. That's all. But the fact that we have people who just can't imagine, like Chris's friends, you know, in, in, in the school, they just can't imagine that being patriotic and being a follower of Jesus might lead you in opposite directions. That to me itself, this is the imagination that I keep talking about. This, we're going beyond argument or theology. You know, we're not talking about Bible verses now. We're talking about matters of the will, of the heart. This is part of what I talk about, the broken information ecosystem that we move in. Like, you know, we, we, we just, it's so deep. The, uh, the the kind of the world that we move in. Like I said, I was brought up to be a culture warrior. You know, did you did you ever guys? Did you ever come across that phrase? Is that a phrase that you're? Oh, that was huge for me. I mean, and for for us, it was uh, you know presuppositional, like um, uh, Francis Schaeffer kind of things as well. Oh, I don't know if Francis Schaeffer was a big influence, and uh, Charles Coulson. I mean, C.S. Lewis was part of it too. And oh, he was. Dra- to it. He wasn't one himself, but yeah, right, exactly. What I mean by that, like his writings were used as, as, as an apologetic type of language. And, yeah, yeah I, I grew up on that as well. Um, and some of it was really good because because um, Pentecostalism is often seen as anti-intellectualism, and so there was this whole stream within my within my churches where like, they were like, "No, we have to take these things serious. We have to study. We have to learn." And yeah. so, in a yeah. way, that even if, even if it was framed within a culture war kind of mindset, it it, it sparked in me like a desire. They're like, I, I always wanted to know more. I wanted to like, yeah. okay, so like, please show me another book. Show me another thinker that I need to, to read about. So yeah. 
funny how it's all in there, you know, together. It's all about who we listen to at the end but of no, the day. But no, even even in that language. I mean, culture warrior is not a insult. These were these were a phrase that was like self-identified. This was the phrase they took on for themselves. Yeah. What Absolutely. are you doing? Like a warrior is meant to kill people. And uh, for what? For your culture. That's right. national. That's just nationalism. That's just my group. That's just we're going to kill the enemies of our culture in order to control the, the, the narrative again. So all that inf- all that energy was being poured into making Christians run their culture rather than making Christians be followers of the way of Jesus. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I went to I went to school with culture warriors. I was raised as one. And nobody talked about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, but they do sure like to talk about postmodernism and liberal bias and all that other stuff, you know. <laughs> Which was a very effective way, as we've seen, of mobilizing a whole generation of people who are going to take back their culture. It worked. Yeah. And so in a way, that's that's why I asked this question about dominionism and theonomy, because I, I don't know. And I this would require lots of uh, research on, on all of our parts. Maybe maybe, Stephen, you know way more about it is what is their end game? So once they've established once they've established uh uh, th- their new empire here. I mean, a lot of people think it's going to be like the Handmaid's Tale, where you know the, all the women are made to wear you know red robes, and they're all you know. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, the, that's the fear. Well, I think. Listen, we, we're going to come into land here. I think we we'll, we'll keep do, we'll keep this conversation going. But I think the end game. If I'm going to get theological for you in a bit, I think the end game that we've got generations of Christians who don't believe that the incarnation was the final and best word of God. They think that their nation is. They actually believed in liberal progressive history. The, the uh, liberalism, which is a, a theology and a philosophy of progress. We got a whole lot of conservative Christians who think that Jesus wasn't the last and best word of God. The various nations, whatever nation is on top of the pile, that is the last and best word. That the development of human culture the the advent of America, right? God's chosen nation is the light now to the world. And so you have all these Christians who will very happily use language that Jesus used about the kingdom of heaven being a city on the hill, for example. Now you have Americans who will use that language about their own country and not blink an eye because it's not Jesus who's the last and best word, it's their country. So I feel like a lot of dominionism they would never say it, but what they effectively are doing is they're saying the way of Jesus was a, a, a revelation for a time and a place, but it is no longer relevant. And there's a new time and a new place. History has progressed and it's led to us and it's led to our civilization. And it's our job to do what it takes to put that civilization in place. And they have superseded the way of Jesus for the sake of patriotism. So that's what I think the end game is, is to say we're the new revelation. It's it's coming us. We are the city on the hill now, not Jesus. That's a happy ending, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) We're all about happy endings. (laughs) You know, I'm going to, I have to say in the next episode, we're, we're really turning a corner. I kind of, even myself, I'm tired of just being negative all the time. I'm going to start repopulating our imagination. Uh, in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the gospel and faith 
you know, I'm going to talk about how to, like, what it is to read the scriptures if you're not a person of power or seeking to be one, and just to find ways to, I don't know, put some more tools back in the toolbox rather than just be negative all the time. <laughs> so, guys, thank you for joining me with this. Uh, really lovely to see you and to talk with you. We will continue our conversation next week. But until then, God bless. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.